All right, we got another Wednesday Wisecast coming to you. What's going on, Nick? What's going on, man? Not What's much, happening? man. What are you up to today? It's not too much. Heading to the Yankees game later on tonight. Heading to the Bronx. Cool. See if they can pick up a big win. Tanaka's pitching. Uh, it's so, the yeah, Tanaka's should, day. The, the Tanaka's day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I was kind of upset. You know, the eight-game eight winning streak ended last night. But, um, you know, they you, they were due for a loss. And it's good that it's the second game of a series. You know, because yeah. now you can just redeem it and then win the series tonight. Well, you know, you win two out of three and then go into, um, who are they playing next? I think playing the Pittsburgh. They're yeah, going to the Pirates. Pirates and then Boston after that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, okay, you, you're going to lose sooner or later. It might as well be the second game of the series yeah. where you can bounce back and take the third game. But, yeah, um, and you got Tanaka. And Severino didn't look too bad. So No, he just gave up the home runs, you know, the, the big plays. So, but we couldn't score, yeah. so it didn't matter. Um, like John Sterling says, you, you can't figure baseball. No, you can't. You can't, especially him. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, before we get started, I just want to say uh, you guys should find us on iTunes, the podcast app at the Wisecast. Uh, rate and review us. You know, even if you hate us, just just let us know why you hate us, and I won't I won't promise that I'm not going to fight you on Twitter. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter at Chaz Garden. And uh, we don't give Nick's Twitter uh, name out, so no, no, keep it personal. Yeah, okay, all right, fine. <laughs> uh, also, Nick and I are going going to be starting um, uh, a book, and we're going to do a book review on it in a in a future episode. And we're going to look at Walter Lippmann's uh, you know famous book, basically Public Opinion. Um, Walter Lippmann, underrated New Yorker, by the way. Um, he doesn't get the respect as a New Yorker that he needs, but he's like basically the the father of modern journalism. He coined the the term stereotype, basically, and how we use it in public discourse. He was really influential in not only journalism, but he was part of uh, the Peace Commission in World War One, which is kind of what we're going to talk about today. And um, yeah, I mean, this is just a smart guy, and his his stuff is timeless. And uh, it's just important to we're, we want to look at it basically because journalism is obviously in a crisis. So let's let's go back to the beginning, you know, and 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 see what a guy like Walter Whitman had to say on. Um, journalism and just uh, public opinion in general. So we'll probably read that book. Do uh, probably in like a month or so. We'll we'll pump out an episode. So if you're interested, grab the book yourself, read it, and then um, you know come listen to our podcast on it. But tune uh, in. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> today we're gonna do something we haven't done before, and we're, kinda, <coughs> we're this is where our expertise is essentially. Uh, Nick and I are history guys, so we're gonna look at uh, World War One. Um, April is the marks the hundredth anniversary of American um, intervention in that war back in 1916 uh, or 19 yeah 1916 1917 um, and there's a lot of parallels to what's happening today with what happened in World War One and we're gonna kind of we're gonna kind of look at those and discuss that today and you know why look at World War One right it's a it's a it's a conflict that we don't really pay too much attention to in the United States in public ed- education and even through college, and I think the reason for that is because the war started in 1914. We don't get involved until 1917. Um, at that time, yes, the United States involvement really pushed the war in the favor of the Allies, but or the Entente as they were called. Uh, but it's not this heroic story like World War II was, and then we don't come out on the other side of it World wasn't, War I. It wasn't like the good versus evil struggle that World War no. II has been has been has been made to to appear. Right, and we don't come yeah. out of World War One the superpower like we came out in World War Two. So for the for the United States and our you know national identity, and even for you know uh, fostering um, patriotism, World War One is just a little bit less useful for those functions, right? Uh, but World War One really, you know, the old saying, well, you can't have World War Two without World War One, And that's basically where it's placed. And it, obviously that's true. But so much more happened in World War One or the yeah. Great War, as it's called, that is so important for today. Um, and because we don't really understand it in this country, uh, like Britain and France or Germany does, because it's so part of their fabric of their history in the 20th century, uh, we we forget things. We forget the lessons, and we are uh, you know always prone to repeat our mistakes, as as history shows us. But um, and we forget the significance of 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 what kind of shift the conflict represented right. uh, within the Western world, and you know by association the rest of the world as well. Yeah, and and the way we're gonna frame it is, I I always look at World War One as the transition from the 19th century into the 20th century. Because, you know, we have this false idea that, okay, from 1899, once it becomes 1900, we are now in the 20th century. Or 1999 to 2000, we're in the 21st century. But it takes a long time for the uh, zeitgeist or the paradigm to shift into the new century. 
and it, it you know World War One basically forced that shift because you have not only do you have World War One, you have the Russian Revolution, and then after World War One, you have the Paris Peace Conference, which is like the first major world peace conference. Um, <clears throat> and then after that, you have the creation of the modern Middle East because the Middle East did not exist. We didn't call it yeah. the Middle East until after World War. One, you have these age old empires like the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsing pretty mm-hmm. much, you know, um, yep. you know, and all this, you know, just sort of a rewriting of the map um, that was kind of crazy to think about. You don't like we don't really see that kind of thing, these borders being dissolved and then rewritten the way, you know, we're kind of seeing it play out right now mm-hmm. um, in the Middle East with Syria and Iraq and some of these, other, you know, Yemen to a certain extent, Libya. Um, but you know, that that's, you know, that's the only thing that we can really compare it to. And this was, you know, and, and those are sort of constructions um, of, you know, foreign powers, the, those those borders. These are, you know, in World War One, this these were the collapse of these of these historic, you know, all time great empires, yep. you know, just falling apart. And then, you know, the victors were left to sort of reassemble what was going on. You know, so there was it was this complete shift in geopolitics that truly upended the um, the political stage. Yeah, and I find it interesting that it, it's happening roughly at the same time that I think our own shift is happening, you know, the first yeah. couple of decades of the century. And, um, you know, that shift that took place in World War One really obviously set the table for the rest of the century, and then it ends up blowing up, you know, bigly, as Trump would say, in World War Two. right? So my fear is is that we, we kind of botch the transition in the 21st century, the 20th to the 21st century now. And then hopefully we do not have a similar situation where you have a few years, a couple of decades where things are okay. And then it blows up and then you have a major conflict because yeah. if you do not, if, if the transition well, is things- botched, it's, it's, and we, and we have this to look at, we have world war one to look at, to realize how mistakes made because of old thinking could blow up in the future. Yep. Essentially, essentially, it was people were late to apply the lessons learned in the war mm-hmm. um, to uh, the post-war years, which I think set set the ground or laid the groundwork for World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and we can get into that later on. But I think you know the the main theme of this, um, while it, it isn't a perfect parallel, um, we can take certain lessons and apply it to what's going on right now because I think that there are a lot of broad similarities between what we're seeing going on geopolitically and domestically right now with what was happening between 1914 and 1918. Um, obviously, we don't want to draw an exact comparison, but I think that there are lessons to be to be learned, especially if we want to repeat a major world conflict um, that, like we saw in the middle of the century, last century. Right. And um, we're going to try to avoid basically talking about, you know, the beginning of the war, the middle of the war, the end of the war, because we just don't have the time. Um, you know, to really go yeah. over and fill everybody and, in on the war. And we're big war. picture guys. We're big picture guys. Yeah, we're, you know? we're big picture guys. And if you're unfamiliar with the events and the reasons and the conflicts in within the war, um, there's a lot of good resources out there. Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History Podcast, um, his series called Blueprint for Armageddon is like unbelievably great. <laughs> It was the inspiration re- for meticulous, me to- very meticulous. Oh, oh yeah. So that'll so that'll give you all like all, all the details that you would want to know. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, if you didn't want to read a book on it, I mean, he he sources his podcasts very well. So he 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 really reads the sources and then in, in constructs the show based on that. So um, he's a reliable narrator for sure. Um, and I would encourage everybody to look at that because that was basically the the inspiration for me to even go and decide to teach a class on World War One was basically that podcast, but. So what we're going to start out with today is we're going to skip a lot of the cause and effect and all that stuff and the battles, and we're going to assume that you guys are going to do your own background, but we're going to talk about themes and parallels, and the one parallel that I kind of think we should start with is in World War One. it took a couple of years for the generals to really kind of catch up on the realities of modern warfare. Uh, you have, you know, Germany, France, and then Britain fighting kind of like 19th century style, right? With 20th century technology and weapons. So you have the grand charge, you know, an exchange of fire, maybe a little bit of artillery, and then each side runs at each other. They get into hand-to-hand combat until one side runs away, right? 
And that doesn't really work when you have machine guns and modern artillery where you just when you get up and actually do that grand charge, because it was a romantic idea, you know, like we're going to make them surrender and we're going to have hand to hand combat and they're going to run away. It doesn't really work when there's modern machine guns and artillery exploding everywhere. So this is why you have trench warfare. But, it, you know, you can't survive unless you go underground, essentially. But mm-hmm. it took almost two and a half years for the generals to realize, OK, that doesn't work. And by then you have a tragedy, right? It was a tragedy on day one, basically. You just have, you know, it's a meat grinder, as Dan Carlin calls it, just guys running into bullets and, and shrapnel and everything like that. So it took a while for them to make this adjustment. And only at the end of the war do you see them have modern warfare tactics where you use cover and movement and cover fire. And you don't just have, you know, guys just sitting there waiting to get mowed down. Now, through that, that that's kind of a theme that kind of guides the war, just like not figuring out how to fight with the new technology. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what that's what caused Germany the war. Germany's whole battle plan was based off of, yes. um, you know, a 19th century ideal of, you know, this kind of battle where you there's one decisive victory. You know, they were entering World War One thinking that it was going to be a six week war, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how, you know, and, and they would be able to 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 assume a, uh, you know, a place of dominance within the European continent, you know. Um, you remember that Germany was kind of new to the, you know, new to the game. They only became a, uh, a nation in the 1860s. Um, and so, you know, and, and they're, they were playing catch up, but they, they had a big inferiority complex, yes. um, you know, and they were kind of just playing catch up the entire time. So to the, to, to the rest of the continent. Um, so their whole thing was to win one decisive victory on the field. And that would, um, you know, solidify their role on the European continent. But that was very short-sighted, um, and I think eventually it cost them the war because they would just not give up that strategy. Um, and then what ended up helping, you know, uh, obviously the um, the entrance of the U.S. on the side of the Entente was, was you know, a game-changer. But, you know, there's also a shift in, in battlefield strategy that allowed for uh, this war of attrition to eventually break into uh, one that could, you know, pave a path to victory. Yeah, and then why do we have tanks? We have tanks because the air is filled with shrapnel and bullets, and a tank is largely immune to shrapnel and bullets, yeah. you know, and so mm-hmm. we're transporting yourself, and then eventually they turn it into a weapon, you know. But yeah. this this theme going through the war that, you know, the, the tactics are not catching up to the technology kind of went through and then to the end of the war where at the end of the war, and we'll talk about this part of the conflict a little bit later, um, but after the war ended, the British and the French kind of start carving up the Ottoman Empire, okay, which is where the modern-day Middle East is. And the British find themselves in control of what we would call Iraq today, what they called Mesopotamia, the modern state of Iraq. They're now administering this swath of land in the desert, right? Like I said, we'll get into how that happened. But in order to, you know, administer the colony, essentially, and to keep it in line, Churchill decides, listen, because of how bloody the war was, because we, we just had this massacre of people because of the tactics and the, the bullets and all that shit that we were talking about, we the country is war-wearied, so we can't commit troops to the Middle East to, to yeah, kind of can form you imagine, this new Can state. you imagine trying to rally a uh, fucking imperial force yeah. after World War One to go in to pacify this land? You know, yeah, right. Yeah, not going to happen. And also, yeah. they were fucking broke. <laughs> it was like, we're yeah, broke. We yeah, can't, yeah, we can't yeah. you know, provide food and clothing and weapons to this colonial force. We just can't do it and nobody's going to go for it. So what he decides is like, yeah, okay, how, how are we going to do this? Well, you know, we'll, we'll try to train as many of the natives as we can. Um, we'll put, you know, somewhat of a puppet into power, a guy favorable to us. We'll make sure that he gets elected. And then what we'll do is we'll use this new thing that we have called the Royal Air Force to kind of administer the colony, keep it in line. That will be our military footprint. Use the locals and then use our air power to essentially intimidate and shock them because remember this is a new thing air power bombing and things like that that was developed during world war one so churchill saw it as a way where well we have this land now we're obviously not going to give it up we can test this new technology the aircraft and bombing you know in this arena and then not have to commit troops now that sounds a lot like our current foreign policy in the middle east now right and it's just crazy that you know churchill you know churchill the 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 hero of, of of england you know came up with this idea of this is how we're going to do it. And we still haven't let go of that idea. Now, the way this parallel works is that I'm under the impression that this is not an effective way to fight a war a, but it never was because obviously the British still, you know, didn't control Iraq through the 20th century. Eventually they had to give it up because it wasn't an effective way to fight or administer a colony back then. 
So mm-hmm. we still haven't learned that the way the generals in the first couple of years of the war still haven't learned that we should not charge machine guns and artillery. So that was. Well, one- I would I would maybe hope that we are learning it right now um, because yeah. you know we're seeing. Well, but yeah, I mean, that's well. No, I mean I'm going to ask you. I mean, we yeah. Trump just dropped the, the Moab, the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, and that was largely you know effective, possibly. Um, we don't have to argue the the merits of that strike or not, but this is a theme where you know you bomb the hell of Vietnam, don't win that war, right? And then you know you can't really bomb an insurgency or an idea into into hell, right? And we, we still I don't we, and but the reason why we're doing that is because we are war wearied. We don't want to commit troops, and yeah, we don't we still know feel the need to to control that area or to have right. some sway in that area. Yeah, and we don't also. You know, not only do we want to commit troops, but are, are can we even afford to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do, can the United States even afford to commit troops if we want? I think to? politically, politically, no, they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing. You know, we're 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 weary from from Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, um, Obama was elected on the promise to pull out of those countries. Uh, you know, so so that the sentiment for um, for not having troops on the ground or boots on the ground um, is pretty high within the U S I think. Um, but it's not very effective. You know, it's not, it's not easy to, to influence things from the air. There's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be some other factor. And, and frankly, I think that that helps the enemy's cause, especially when you're dealing with these insurgent groups, like what ISIS is or AQAP or, or, or any of these other, you know, uh, radical groups that are now ga- that have gained a lot of control and sway within these regions. Um, you know, the occupying force is always going to have a very hard time. But when you sort of remove yourself from the situation physically, um, while simultaneously trying to influence events from above, you're not really doing yourself any favors. It's hard to say. I think that more and more people are real- like realizing that this is not an effective strategy, but we can't really get out of this colonial mindset um, that has sort of existed in the West for forever almost, you know, but we keep trying to remove ourselves physically from it, but we can't, we can't just quit it altogether. You know, we can't let it just like, just, just chalk it up to, or, you know, just like let things unfold the way that, you know, they would unfold without us there. Right. And I mean, and that's basically also what happened at the end of world war one, you know, the prize, and this was this was something that, you know, the leaders of Britain and France were talking about before the war and during the war was that the Ottoman Empire was weak. Right. And they mm-hmm. knew, hey, if the Ottoman Empire gets involved in this war, you know, they're probably going to be on the losing side of it because they just are, you know, they're the they used to call the Ottoman Empire the sick man of Europe. You know what I mean? They uh-huh. just couldn't keep it together. They barely could collect taxes, which is like the basic function of a state, you know, just collecting yeah. taxes. They had this Middle Eastern territories. And it was largely ruled by the Turks in what we would call modern day Turkey and Istanbul. And it was just, you know, it was something that they realized, hey, this is going to be the spoil of war is the Ottoman Empire. Right. And they were, they were ready for this before the war even started. And by the time the war ends, Britain and France were competing with each other at the last couple of days of the war to catch up all this territory. And then when you get to the peace conference, it's it's business as usual. It's colonialism. It's like, OK, we yep. want this territory. You're get this territory. This and that, bada, bada, bada. And then, you know, it's the same thing as this neocolonialism and regime change that we're seeing now. We can't quit it because of why? Because we need, you know, the some sort of well, whatever, whatever there, benefit would be. There's this desire to have influence in the region. Yes. You know, there's this fear that if we seed it in the ground, someone else would just come in to fill it up. You know, we don't, you know, it's it, it it's obvious that we don't really trust the 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 local inhabitants to govern themselves, despite all this rhetoric about, you know, wanting to bring democracy in self-representation to these areas, you know, that was employed during the Bush years in, uh, in Iraq, you know, that, that's all, that's all a farce, you know, uh, we just want somebody in, in power who's going to do our bidding or, you know, be partial to our interests. Um, because if not, you know, we, there's the fear that somebody else will come in that come in there and swap and, and, you know, just totally swipe it up. Um, you know, at this point it's probably Russia or we'll see grants by Iran, you know, shit like that. Um, so for whatever reason, you know, that, and I'm sure that there is a, a more coherent reason, at least there's a coherent um, justification that can be given. But, you know, people are, you know, the people, the people in power are, are, are unwilling to, to see those areas fall out of our orbit. Um, you know, that's almost like a, that's a, a big time failure for us. You know, the best thing to do would honestly, you know, to let, let ISIS just kind of, you know, eat itself out. But we continue to 
fan the flames of that resentment uh, towards the West that they really base their whole ideology around, um, you know, by, yeah, by, 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 yeah, we, we keep trying to continue to have a role there. Um, but by doing so, you know, the paradox is that by, by doing so, we're allowing ISIS to, or, you know, or these radical groups to continue to uh, create propaganda um, to just, you know, find more reasons to hate us pretty much. Yeah. And let, let's talk about that propaganda because ISIS very early on, they said something that a lot of people probably didn't connect with anything, but they said, we're going to smash Sykes Pico and Sykes mm-hmm. Pico, you know, what the hell is that? That is a product of world war one Sykes Pico. Uh, Mark Sykes was a British diplomat and um, I think his name was George's Pico or something like that. He was the French diplomat. And they basically came up with an agreement of how to divide what we would call the Middle East today in like 1960. And the war wasn't even over yet. Yeah. It was in a secret, a secret agreement. And Iraq, Syria, yes. that whole area. So yeah. And Israel. The, it created the borders, you know, the fake borders of Iraq and Syria where the, the, the French were going to get modern-day Lebanon and Syria, and then part of, you know, basically Israel, right? And then the British would get essentially all of Iraq. And then Jerusalem would be um, basically under international. It would be an international zone, essentially, because of how important it was. And they came up with this plan in 1916, and then it gets watered down and changed a little bit after the war, but essentially it was the basis for the borders that you have there today, Right. And ISIS is saying, we're going to smash Sykes-Pico. Now, it's symbolic and also practical in their terms. They literally smash the border between Iraq and yeah. Syria, right? So that's yes. part of it. But they're also talking you know, about we're going Iraq to— Iraq and Syria still exist on the map, but in reality, yes. I feel like there's no real border there anymore. We're seeing these borders melt away yes. completely. You and, know? It, and even besides the borders, right, because that's kind of the practical, real uh, changing of smashing of Sykes-Pico— but it's also just we're going to smash Western colonialism because w- that yeah. is essentially what they're talking about. So that gets into the whole idea that was also kind of coined during World War One is the idea of self-determination, which was coined by Woodrow Wilson in 1918, in January or so. Um, as the war was coming to an end, he started giving speeches in the United States and he um, came up with the idea. I'm not going to give him credit for it, but he coined it. Um, the idea of self-determination that uh, the people should be able to determine what kind of nation they have, and, and and that's the basis of the nation state, is the people. They will decide. And this idea kind of caught like wildfire through all these areas that were once part of these old empires, because now mm-hmm. it's very clear that these empires are going to end. The Ottoman Empire will just use them. And now we have a chance. The Arabs of the desert, the Arabs in what we would call Saudi Arabia and in Iraq and Mesopotamia and Syria, they can now self-determine and create their own state away from the Turks, right? And this idea kind of caught like wildfire, and then obviously it did not happen. We created Iraq and Syria and created the border based out of, I say we, the West, the British and the French, out of their own interests and their own rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then now we're seeing, okay, now these borders are all screwed up, and you have a country like, or a, I'm not even going to say a country, I can't even say a country yet, but people like the yeah. Kurds who had been fighting ISIS and carving out an area of northern Iraq and eastern Syria and they're yeah. essentially doing that. They're self-determining that this is going to well, be so that, so that was that was the big folly of of that agreement was that it it didn't really take into account the different uh, tribal allegiances or you know the Sunni Shia divide really yeah. um, or you know like the Kurdish divide these different sects that existed within the society. It showed a complete lack of uh, awareness of the you know facts on the ground in terms of. Um, you know, who got along with who and who didn't get along with who, you know, it, it had nothing, it was totally arbitrary. Yes. It had nothing to do with, um, you know, with what the people wanted or what was best for the inhabitants. It was totally for the sake of uh, maintaining, you know, or, or, or gaining ground, gaining power for these empires, um, the victors of the war pretty much. Um, you know, so I think, you know, this sentiment, this, this, this distaste, if you want to call it that, towards the West, that might be too soft of a term, but that the, the one that exists within that region, um, you know, goes way back, you know, and I think it goes further back than Sykes Pico, but that's just the, the, uh, the most recent incarnation or, you know, sort of like the most tangible incarnation of this current power structure that we're kind of seeing, you know, I don't want to say fall apart, but we're seeing it being challenged right now, um, with these conflicts in the Middle East, you know, you, so you, you, you know, the transition, uh, in the you know from the 19th 20th century saw the death of these empires 
um, and but their territory sort of gobbled up and then uh, you know appropriated into this new par- paradigm that saw a different dominant group on the global stage that kind of stayed in its place throughout the course of the 20th century. Uh, but now we're seeing that challenge. You know, we're seeing these 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 structures being challenged. You know, the U.S. and its you know fabricated ally in Iraq. We can't. You know, it, that's uh, you know problematic in and of itself. You know, and the more and more we try to assert control, I feel like the less of it we really have. Um, and so it's challenging that whole mentality of trying to use geopolitics and influence different groups, various groups on the ground to sort of do our bidding for us. You know, the only real like, real way to gain control would be to go in there with boots on the ground and just occupy, you know, but we can't really do that mm-hmm. at this point. Um, so, you know, where this is this decision, do we keep going at it with this strategy of, you know, bombing and, um, you know, putting up puppets that, you know, seems to backfire every time, or do we shift the strategy um, and do things differently? Yeah, and the other thing that I feel like we forget in the West, especially in the United States, and I'm not going to actually say we forget in the United States, we just didn't, don't know straight up, you know, is uh-huh. that this is part of the history of that region. They they know what yeah. Sykes-Picot is, right? Yeah, 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 you know, totally. Iraqis totally. and Syrians, they know about it. Um, it's it's a, it's a, something that we learn here, but they learn it because it's part of their history. Now, you may never learn that if you go to school here, right? Yeah. Most people, I would argue, well, it, don't know. It about won't it. mean it won't mean anything to you. You know, yeah. there there there's a real. I feel like there's like a real emotional attachment. You know, not you know, and like I mean, not like sentimental type. You know, there's mm-hmm. a real kind of um, you know there's a violent history tied up in that agreement that we don't really see. It doesn't mean anything for Americans, you know? Yeah. But for the Iraqi or the Syrian, you know, that kind of explains it, 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 it helps to explain the oppressive society that they currently live within, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean that the reason, you know, we've learned in, in so many different ways that, post-colonial areas are the areas of the world that have a lot of issues socially, politically, economically. These areas that were once ruled by the United States, Britain, yeah. France, Germany, the Dutch, all these areas are the ones that are largely, you know, underdeveloped. Not all of them, but some of them. The Middle East for sure, right? Completely, yeah. you know, not really integrated into the world economy besides a few states that have oil. But other than that, they got nothing. They got nothing. They yeah. got nothing else but oil. Um, and then, you know, this is part of their history. So we don't know it. They, they obviously know it. And we're, it's very ironic that it's being used as propaganda to recruit this group like ISIS that is going to try to redraw the map from the Sykes-Picot agreement. And just going back to the Kurds, right? So the Kurds were talked about at the peace conference in 1919 in Paris. And essentially what it came down to, no decision was made on what to do with the Kurds. And the reason for that is that the Kurds didn't really have a leader, a representative that could come to the peace conference and kind of state the case for the Kurds, right? They were more tribal and they were really like an outlier. There was Arab allies that the British and the French had, but mostly the British, but they didn't really have a Kurdish ally, right? So the Kurds kind of get ignored and then we kind of go through the decades and they're they're straddling three countries, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. The Turks don't like the Kurds. Saddam gassed the Kurds in northern Iraq. Um, Now they're kind of self-determining and the idea of this neo-colonialism thing where the West is going to create these borders of this part of the world really comes to mind when you, if you talk about the Kurds because they've defended this territory now for a couple yeah. of years against ISIS. Yeah, it's like, will Kurdistan be its own country in 15 years? Yeah. You know, that's I mean, kind, of, it, kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, and um, it's, a, it's a, <clears throat> a question that you have to have. It's like, okay, well, when ISIS is defeated, right? Let's just say they're defeated in a couple of years. They, get put, they might get pushed out of Mosul, hopefully, by the end of the year, right? Which last refuge in Iraq. And it will be largely Kurds who help get them there. And then, you know, Iraqi and Iranian militias. We're not going to get into that. But, you know, the Kurds really had played a large role in fighting them in Iraq and with our mm-hmm. backing. So what happens? You push ISIS out. They're no longer there. Do you now incorporate Kur- Kurdistan or the Kurds back into the state of Iraq? Do you maintain that border that was created in 1923? Yeah, I mean, it's really like, like you know, what what is the end game here? Are you just trying to reestablish these borders that 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 existed you know i mm-hmm. i can't really like get a sense of what in terms of like ge- you know geography what they hope to accomplish mm-hmm. you know it's obvious that like that they want to push isis out but then what 
you know, then do you just reestablish these old borders that, you know, don't really, you know, it, it's been shown to us how, you know, useless they like they're and meaningless they are, you know, if they can like that, you know, some insurgent group can wipe them away, you know, what does that say for, for their, uh, for their validity, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and while ISIS is not the, you know, best representation of self-determination, you know, they do make a good point, I think, and they do expose the flaws of um, the creation of like the nation state for the sake of creating a state, you know, that's kind of like this 20th century idea, the nation state, you mm-hmm. know, and how you sort of have to be a state in order to, um, you know, carry some weight on the global stage. So, you know, but I think we're now seeing, we're now, you know, seeing a shift away from that, you know, um, does the state really matter, you know, or how much weight does the state really carry? You know, what, what, what's the significance of it? And does it, you know, does it mean anything really? Well, here's, here's a question for you then while we're talking about it. And we already mentioned self-determination. What constitutes a state? You know, what is a state and how do you defend a state? Borders and a national identity. I think that those are the two main things. Yeah. And so a lack of those things often, you know, indicates, you know, so for instance, the British were able to justify their subjugation of the Indian people by claiming that they were, they hadn't reached an evolutionary stage where they were developing a state in this national identity. They were scattered, you know, they were kind of, there was there were some you know <clears throat> some tries, but there's no cohesive Indian identity, and for them that meant that they were further you know below on the timeline of historical progress than the British were. So that allowed them to rationalize um, you know occupying that area. You know they were, they were able to take some you know adopt an altruistic kind of you know a, a veneer of altruism to their to their colonization. You know, which was, you know, it's like Bush saying that we're going in, into Iraq to free the people, uh, to free the Iraqis, mm-hmm. you know, like, 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 like that kind of you know, just bullshit argument in order to make yourself feel like feel better about the violence that you're committing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but there is this philosophy. It's a, it's like a, it's, it, it's a Hegelian philosophy of, you know, the creation of the nation state. You know, I, I guess, you know, they use a sort of a more abstract, um, you know, philosophy and apply it to these, you know, geopolitical terms where, you know, once you're a nation state and you have this identity and, and you have these borders, that's when you sort of made it, you know. Um, and so they tried to uh, accelerate that process by creating states like Iraq and Syria, but they didn't really have a national identity in the way that, you know, the Brits might have or like the French have, you know. Yes. Um, it didn't really happen in this organic way. And, you know, who's to say that that's even the right thing to do? You know, but but it's 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 this kind of outlook on the world that says you have to adhere to to these principles in in order to be valid. Um, So I think that's kind of like at the crux of resentment towards the West among a lot of people throughout the world is, you know, who are you to say that, you know, your way of living is the right way to live, you know? Right. And so I think that's, you know, potentially one shift that's occurring is that we're kind of, you know, seeing you know, maybe what we've been employing for the past, you know, 70, 80, 90 years is not really effective and it's not the right thing to be doing. Yeah, it's not it's not effective in creating stable states. You know what I mean? Because yeah. the whole idea, the whole idea of neoconservatism and regime change was, well, the world will be better if the model for government is, you know, liberal democracy, because liberal democracies tend not to fight each other in war, right? They figure out yeah. a way to kind of coexist. So if you have a rogue regime like Iraq, who's not going to sell us oil, or, you know, Chavez in Venezuela there, he was on the ship <laughs> for a while, or Gaddafi, it's it's in the West's in the world's best um, interest to depose these people and replace those countries with democracy so that they can be integrated into like kind of the world order, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean that, that that's how you sell it to the people. Of course, it's, yes, that is the is, yeah. yeah because because well, like what you're really doing is you're just implementing a, a capitalist economic structure, right. or you know, not even that one like like a because because the think of who we've deposed throughout the course of the you know the, the second half of the 20 like uh, 20, 20th century it were like it was all leaders of former uh, colonized like colonized regions that gained independence in the in the wave of post-colonialism or uh, decolonization that occurred after World War II 
Um, they, you know, they developed, you know, they were essentially self-determining and they were electing people who are more on a socialist tilt, which is fine, you know, but at, at that, at that time, right. um, that, that was very no, dangerous. No bueno. Like during, yeah, yeah, yeah. During yeah. the cold war, that was very dangerous because it, it was seen as, you know, Russian influence, um, or, you know, Soviet influence, I, sh- I, I should say, but it was all people, you know, who were, you know, nationalists, um, you know, they had the support of the people, they were democratically elected, um, but they were closing off their industries. They were saying, all right, you, the West has had enough of, of exploiting our resources. We're going to nationalize our industry, like the oil or, you know, the fruit industries, and we're going, and, and we're going to give the, like, the proceeds back to the people. You know, these, na- like, these multinational corporations are no longer going to be dictating the terms of what goes on with our land um, and, you know, what we do with our resources. And that it was, was very dangerous. Yeah. So we went in there, we, we, we kicked those guys out and we installed dictators <clears throat> who, while they were very violent, they at least opened up the industry to American interests and Western interests. We realized that we've done that throughout the Cold War, Guatemala, Iran, uh, Chile, all throughout the Latin America, really, there's a whole history of doing that in Latin America in the name of fighting communism. Now we're doing mm-hmm. it in the name of fighting terrorism and, and regimes that will harbor and support terrorist groups, you know, which was kind of the whole reason behind Iraq. You know, he, he helped al-Qaeda and he had weapons of mass destruction. You know, that's how it was sold to us. So we're seeing kind of like in the last few years, which is why we're so war weird, how ineffective that strategy was in the 21st century and how yeah. difficult it is to fight a modern insurgency. Well, now we're seeing, we're seeing the blowback of it. Right, you know, the blowback you know, for sure. And yeah. and it all has ties to the peace conference in 1919 and 1920 and after that where we created these states. And now they have a legacy of being kind of puppets and controlled by the West. And then you have a group yeah, like and, ISIS. And, that, and, and they're... They're tired of it, frankly. Yeah, you know, but 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 we haven't. So I, I think the parallel that that can be drawn here is that the strategy hasn't really caught up um, to the facts on the ground. Exactly. You know, it's it, like like it isn't perfect because it was all you know. So for instance, there have been military ad- advancements, obviously within the 20th century and 21st century, but we're using the same tactics and strategy that we have been using all throughout you know, from 1950 on pretty much, um, you know, and so the, and, but, you know, with, with mixed results every single time, you know, like Vietnam, we had to go in there, you know, because mm-hmm. we just couldn't get it done. Um, you know, I guess you can say, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't argue that any of them were really, really successes. Um, but you know, at least we were, like, we were able to pacify the, the, uh, like, like the home population, you know? Um, but now we're seeing that we can't even do that. Um, and it's, and it's creating this huge, disaster really um we're just doubling down on this on this approach and we haven't evolved our thinking about it um in the you know in 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 the way that that people were forced to during world war one to to really change uh how we approach that situation um and how we remain relevant in the global conversation yeah and it's gonna it's going to be interesting when if there ever comes a close to the current conflict you know, what do we do with the Kurds? Because obviously Turkey won't be happy about it. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, um, sure. And then also eventually if and hopefully when ISIS is kind of, you know, wiped out, you know, what becomes of this little, you know, proto state that they have, you know, that's largely Sunni. It's very radical. And what do you do? You know, and the the thing that scares me is that we're going to kind of do the neocolonial thing and uh, just sow the seeds for the next conflict in the next few years, you know. Yeah, um, but yeah, let's uh, let's take a break and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about the next parallel between right. um, World War One and the shit that's happening today. We're back, and we're gonna we're gonna pick up the conversation um, around the idea of the establishment and royalty. So, in World War One, you have these royal empires that have been around forever: Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empire in Austria-Hungary, uh, the Tsarist Empire, 
you know, Tsar Nikolai of Russia, he well documented what happened to him because, you know, the Russian Revolution and everything like that. And he, he was cousins with Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, which is kind of odd to think that that, that even happened in the 20th century. It's a very old yeah. world thing to be related to monarchs. Um, yeah, but that was how you solidified control back yeah, in those days. Exactly. Yeah. And then they were they were related to the British royal family as well. So these, you know, this uh, the bloodline, the royal bloodline was, was strong, and then eventually it goes away. You know, the end of the war happens, and um, it kind of goes away. Russia, obviously, we know what happens with them. They they kind of go into revolution and they murder the the czar and his family. The Habsburg Empire gets broken. They take up. it to its extreme logical logical conclusion. Yeah. You know, that's like about <laughs> as crazy as it gets. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, the Ottoman Empire gets split up. They were kind of dying anyway, and in the last couple of decades of the uh, the 19th century into the 20th century, they kind of um, experimented with uh, modernization through the Young Turks movement. Um, but they had the Sultan, who was essentially the leader of the the of, of Islam at that point. He was, um, you know, he was still there, still figurehead, still had some sway. That goes away. And you kind of usher in, you know, the 20th century, where you have the nation state is kind of how, how things are. And it's run by governments and there's political parties and things like that. But the, the theme is that there was, especially in Russia, there was a extreme discontent with the establishment. And now we're seeing that come up again today. And we're seeing our modern version of royal families, the global establishment, as they call them. Um, you have to be careful with that term global. You know, the alt-right throws that around all the time. Globalist, globalist, globalist. And we know that that could be code for Jews, as the World War II teaches yeah. us, right? Um, so you got to be careful with that term. But there is, you know, the economic establishment, you know, the Wall Street. There's this there's this notion that there are a small group of people who kind of run politics and the financial structures mm-hmm. that are you know, that are doing that. So at the expense of, of everybody else. Right. And there's obvious discontent. We're seeing that come up in, in the form of uh, what is being called populism and also seeing the rise of nationalism again. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it's mostly happening in Europe. It's happening here in the United States as well, but it's happening in Europe because now there's this blowback from the EU. The EU has been around for a few decades now. Now, um, countries like Britain with Brexit are, are realizing, hey, we don't want to be a part of this anymore. And then hopefully I don't hopefully not, but possibly in they're France, self-determining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's in, in a funny way they are. Um, and, you know, nationalism played a big role with um, the outbreak of World War One and World War Two, yeah. So we see when nationalism goes too far, it essentially ends up in warfare, right? We have two prime examples of it in, in the last century. Mm-hmm. So today we have the rise of populism and the rise of nationalism. So what do we learn and what, what can we hope to avoid with, with these two movements that are vying for power to kind of take over from the establishment? I mean, what a fucking question. <laughs> you know, there's no answer, really. I mean, there's no answer to it, really. I mean, what do like what did we learn? We learned that, you know, there is nationalism almost became, you know, a taboo word. You heard the word nationalism and you thought and, you know, the connotation was, oh, my God, you know, it's like, you know, national socialists. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it became this negative thing. I don't necessarily think that, you know, but at the, at the same time, Gandhi like was a nationalist, you know, yeah. he believed in like, you know, so it's like believing in your people. Um, believing in the ability of your people to do the right thing. Um, but, you know, when you take that to a certain extent, oftentimes, you know, the, the nationalism has some, you know, it points the finger at someone within the society and says that's the yeah. reason why we're, why we're faltering as a people. Um, you know, for, for Gandhi and the, and the Indians, it was, it was the British. You know, that was why. You know, it was this, this, this occupying power, um, you know, so that, you know, that was dominating them and oppressing them slaughtering them really had no regard for indian life in you know pre-world war ii germany it was the jews you know so it, it, i think it's really circumstantial you know um we're seeing now nationalism play out across europe um they're pointing the finger at muslim immigrants you know mm-hmm. here it's mexicans or you know on the bernie sanders side it's you know the millionaire billionaire class you know it's 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 these it's the these upper one tenth of one percent yeah exactly exactly you know so <clears throat> you know while while bernie sanders has a more uplifting message than you know someone like marine le pen or trump there there's still some you know they're 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 placing blame on some part of of society and it's like essentially saying that you don't fit into the mold you know yeah 
you know, you don't belong here. You're not American. They're they're determining there there are certain things that um, you know you have to be in order to qualify as whatever uh, you know whatever nationality you're you're promoting through your through, like through your practices. Um, so, for instance, you know, Muslim, you know, French Muslims don't really qualify as being French according to French nationalists. Yes, you know, yeah. uh, really rich people who pay little taxes. And, you know, fund these crazy politicians don't qualify as Americans for like the Sanders movement, you know, Mm -hmm. so it really varies. But I think the one common thread is that there is a scapegoat in every in every society that kind of like needs to be squashed down. And that's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. And what I was getting at with that ridiculous loaded question was that there needs to be a move towards a new sort of like center. Right. Because now, if you, let's just take the example briefly of, of the Russian Revolution, right? You had the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. You know, the royalty gets, you know, murdered and overthrown. And now you have two sides on, on radical ends, right, who are fighting out <coughs> for control of the country. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen in this country. But what happens is, is if you have, you know, the far left and the far right or two variations of the far left, essentially what we considered radical on any spectrum, right? What you have then is conflict, number one, and that could come yeah. in many different variations. It can be open conflict, like actual war, or it can come into the, you know, we could technically be in a conflict period now. I think we are, right? But if you are not flexible, I think that's the lesson. You have to be flexible in your ideology. You can't be stuck in your ideology because then it's a zero-sum game. And yeah. at the end of a zero-sum well, I think, game... I think, I, I think the problem is that a lot of these people feel like they've been on the on the, you know... The short end of the stick for so long till yeah. they're done done with with being flexible. You know, right. a lot of these, uh, I don't know, a lot of these, you know, white disenfranchised, you know, people who make up the the you know Trump's base, they feel like they've been getting shot on forever. You know, so they're unwilling to be flexible at this point. Um, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like the thing, like like the mentality um, that they've been sold out, um, sure. and that at, at the expense of somebody else. You know. So, you know, that manifests itself in like minorities or, you know, whatever. But there's this sentiment that, um, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, it, it's a delicate thing because you don't want to condone, you know, those views. You don't want to give them like, like, really, like, like any credence because they're coming at the offense of somebody else. But at the same time, you, can, you sort of have to take a look at why, you know, what parts of our, uh, you know, global or political structure have have created those sentiments. Yeah. And. I would agree, you know, with the mm-hmm. Trump supporter. He's like, yeah, the working class and the rural in, in, in the country, rural areas have been, you know, really getting shit on, you know, for a long time. Right. I mean, it has not been a golden age in rural America or if you're working class in no, a city. Right. It's the not, opposite, it's, actually. Yeah, exactly. So I would I totally agree with that sentiment. But the problem is, is that look what happened in, in Russia. Right. When that era, yeah. when that fringe takes over. OK. You had an entire history of did it get better for them? Did it get better for the working class? You know, and I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it is possible that it could happen when you have a fringe element, right? Like the, you know, the the people of Russia, the peasants and working class of Russia, right? They overthrow the empire and it was and the empire needed to go, right? Because their lives weren't improving. But my thing is it very rarely works out in the 20th century when a radical party takes power. You sure, know what I mean? Of course. It's the center. Somewhere in the center is where you kind of can find toe the line and you're never going to be completely happy, but it's livable, right? It's like the yeah, habitable but, zone but, around but, the sun, the, you know? But the center is almost like the is, is, is almost like saying the status quo. Sure. You know? Yes. So which, you know, so but it it it, it, it became obvious. I, I think these these radical factions came to power in places like Russia or, you know, people flirted with communism. Um you know, in other parts of Europe and then also, you know, this sort of national socialism and this, you know, fascism took hold, um, you know, in the thirties. But I think it was, it was an indication that the status quo wasn't really working out for people anymore. And so when you have a rejection of of the status quo, you're invariably going to have radical, uh, ideas and radical movements because, you know, compared to what people are used to, of course they look radical, but I don't know, capitalism would probably like looked radical at some point, you know, well, but that's kind of, you know, or democracy, but that's kind of the current status quo or this idea of democracy, you know? So, you know, like everything is going to look radical in comparison to what is the norm right now. Um, it's just, you know, uh, finding that, that radical idea 
that is not violent and doesn't exclude anybody from partaking in that ideology. Well, here's a question. We can kind of roll, you know, roll to the end of the episode with this question. You have the whole idea of make America great again and America first, right? Not a new idea, but very nationalistic, right? And you have the people in the alt-right, they call themselves, I am a white nationalist, right? All these people. Nationalism on the rise in America. Then you have somebody like Marine Le Pen in France. You know, same sentiment. If she gets elected, she might take France out of the Eurozone and then eventually out of the EU, yeah, right? she's campaigning on that. Exactly. That's exactly what she's campaigning on. And there's the uh, Melancon or whatever, Melancon, however you pronounce his name. He's kind of like the French Bernie Sanders. He's kind of saying the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, you have the whole Brexit thing and you can... This He's is, crazy, man. He wants he, he wants to cap incomes at $350,000. Isn't that wild? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, not... And this, you know, this is perfect. This is part of the question that I'm going to bring up. It was a good example there. Was... And then, all right, Brexit, right? And this is very intertwined with nationalism within each of those countries, right? The French want to reclaim being French and have a French state that's not tied to Brussels. That was the sentiment in, in England, um, and is the driving sentiment in the United States. My question is, and this kind of brings the whole theme of the show in, is nationalism compatible in the 21st century? Can you have nationalism in the 21st century without having war? What do you think? Well, I think I think you can actually, uh, well, without having a war or conflict? No, I don't think so. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very difficult to do so because, at least within this, this current, you know, uh, you know, what, like what we... we we we're talking about with having borders and you know these nation states. Um, I think that makes it very difficult because you're going to have very you know different you know you're you know invariably going to have different peoples within one state. It's very hard to you know have one you know homogenous society. Yeah. Um, you know without excluding or you know uh, oppressing somebody else. So I just think, think like think that there are. Just you know, inherent things about nationalism that don't make it compatible with peace. You know, yeah. um, you think that your nationality is superior, that your you know lineage is superior, and that in and of itself is going to lead you to conflict because then somebody else who has that same view is going to say, "No, I'm better." You know, what I mean, so it, it it doesn't make a very good situation for diplomacy or like negotiation or like anything like that. You know, you could it, argue it, that nationalism. Didn't work in the twentieth century. You no, know, like World you know, War One yeah, is like a perfect example of that. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, that was you know one reason. You know, they tried to sort of with the EU. That was this kind of post-nationalist idea. You know, we're all European. You know, mm-hmm. or, or like that kind of shit. You know, um, and now we're kind of seeing that you know the the limits of that. But yeah, I don't think that it's possible to have nationalism without having some kind of conflict or having somebody on like the losing end of that. You know, there's always going to be someone, you know, missing out or, you know, not uh, being able to, you know, be a part of, you know, whatever's going on because I feel like that's an inherent thing in, in, in nationalism. Right. Well, here's another thing. Do you think Trump supporters who identify as being white nationalists and Marine Le Pen supporters or Geert Wilders or supporters in, in, in the Netherlands, do you think they think about it in that terms? Like, we're nationalists, and no, I think I think that a lot of times they're they're disenfranchised. So mm-hmm. look, if if you like an interesting thing about these elections that we've seen, our election, Brexit, the French election, um, is that there's this divide between rural and urban. So you know the support for these more mainstream candidates, um, the majority of that is in the cities, you know, for people like, uh, what's the guy, Macron in, in France, who's kind of the like centrist the centrist. Yeah. yeah. His main basis of support is in the city. Um, the main base of support for staying within the EU, um, in, in England were like, we're, we're in the cities. Um, you know, Clinton's main base of support were in the cities, the opponents, you know, so for Trump, for the people who voted for Brexit, Nigel Farage and all those, you know, his ilk, and then for Marine Le Pen, that's all within the, like the this this countryside, uh-huh. um, and so people have, and that's you know I think like, like this, the kind of zeitgeist and of, of of this time is this idea that people within the within the, the countryside with globalization um, they've missed out or they've you know they've had their livelihoods taken away from them you know and be, because you know it's cheaper to make labor abroad or to use labor abroad cheaper to make products. 
shit like that. You know, if things aren't like really being made in like France or, right. you know, these Western countries because, you know, wages are too high. The nationalism is really taking root in those areas because they feel like they've been left out or left behind. And so they're all pointing their fingers at other people, you know. So, you know, in the U.S., it's Mexicans because, you know, Mexicans take the jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also at the global elite, people like Clinton or Macron, um, who buy into this idea of globalization and, you know, this sort of unfettered capitalism and neoliberalism. Um, so that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of, that can explain this, this urban versus rural divide can really explain what's going on right now. Um, and can sort of, you can see, you know, you, you can see that as kind of, you know, almost like, like the genesis of this nationalism that we're seeing happen, uh, again. Yeah. And I also think this is a perfect argument for why we're in the middle of a transition from the 20th to the 21st century. This is why groups like, uh, you know, Trump, Marine Le Pen, Geert Wielders, Mm -hmm. these people who kind of latch onto the nationalist fervor of the discontent, you know, and they use, they take that discontent and they attach nationalism to it. That's why I think these groups are inherently dangerous because we have so many examples of nationalism not working out, right? And like yeah. going too far and leading to conflict. And I also think that it's interesting that you can have somebody like Bernie Sanders or Melon Khan for, uh, you know, not a perfect example, Bernie Sanders more, where he can ta- attach that sentiment, but instead of nationalism, it's uh, being inclusive. That's a very 21st century idea of including everyone, right? That's you, you see yes, that where, but, it, but you know, it's still it it's it's still deeming someone's lifestyle as inappropriate and, right. and not valid. Which you know, I mean, I obviously agree with it, but it's still saying that what you do and how you live your life is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and it might be wrong. You know, and that's a decision that we that we have to make. Um, but you know, that I, I think that approach towards it is what connects it to, um, you know, to other nationalist movements across the country or across the world right now. Yeah. And, uh, in the last three minutes, you know, we'll wrap up. Um, I just encourage everybody to really, you know, get a book, stop reading the news, get a book on world war one or, or listen to Dan Carlin and just like, just read about it and it will fill in the holes, man. There's a lot of holes in the narratives that are happening today with everything and understanding world war one really fills a lot of those gaps. It's really hard sometimes to, you know, to take, like, to remember what, you know, how we got here. You know, it seems oh, yeah. like things are just happening randomly, you know, but it, like, they're not really that random. No, not you at know, all. There, there are all these, you know, you can, like, like, really just, like, go back all the way, you know, and, and that will help explain what's going on right now. Yeah. And, and just to um, talk about France for, for a couple of minutes as we um, end episode seven of the Wisecast. Um, so the elections are happening at the end of this month. And let's just say Marine Le Pen wins, right? And now you have Brexit. You're going to have Brexit because that's what she's campaigning on, right? And then you're going to have a guy like Trump. And Marine Le Pen is very much tied to Vladimir Putin. I mean, she met with Vladimir Putin a couple of weeks ago, you know, when it was televised and people saw it. So there's no secret there that he, she is the candidate that Putin favors. Now, I'm not going to talk about Putin being this boogeyman, not a good guy. I'm not going to get into that. But... Just like World War One, where you had a world order that um, was, you know, deteriorating and then a new world order was emerging. If this happens, if she wins and we have Trump as president and you have a guy like Putin and then you have Brexit. <coughs> now, the thing, the difference bet- between England is that they don't have like a, a, you know, a nationalist leader right now. You know what I mean? But they did leave the European Union. A new world order will emerge if Marine Le Pen wins. You know, it will be completely different. The axis of power will completely shift away from you know the the established order of the american century the 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 much prophesized 21st century would be the american century and you know this is you know i'm i'm being slightly sarcastic about that but the post world war 2 order will change and that's something that we need to be prepared for we don't i don't think it's easy to figure out what that means oh we'll have france they'll be really close to russia you know what's that mean for germany at the end yeah. of the year when they have elections right um so I just want to keep that in mind. And, you know, World War One was interesting because before the war started, there was a few superpowers. You know, the United States still, in all senses, the, the only superpower in the world. But there was a few before World War One. You had the French, you had the British, you had the Germans. You could, you know, they were like top rate world empires. Then you had Russia, which I would consider a top rate world empire. They had a large military, a lot of land. And then you had second rate powers like the Ottoman Empire and Italy. You know, we're kind of moving towards that again, you know, Um yeah. If, well, I think I think I think I, I think the folly that that we that was made in world in 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 the uh, early part of the 20th century 
was that World War One obviously represented a shift in um, you know in like a paradigm, but the political structures didn't really change to address those shifts, mm-hmm. and so and so it was applying old world logic to new world realities. Um, so I think that helped uh, lay the groundwork for the second conflict in, in in the 40s. So I you know I think that we would be unwise to try to do the same thing by applying these 20th century uh, you know conceptions to the current situation. You know, yeah. trying to just keep doing the, th- the things that we've been doing for the past 60 years, 70 years, um, and see if they, <clears throat> if they work out and what's going on right now. I think that's a big lesson to be made is being open to new ways of doing things because it's obvious that the old way isn't really, isn't really working out anymore. Yeah, you know, you would hope, I would hope. Um, it's unclear whether that's going to happen, unfortunately, but... Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. Go enjoy the Yankee <laughs> game, Nick. Um, I will. And I think my lesson to, to the listeners every time we, we wrap up a show is just get off Twitter. I've been doing it, <laughs> getting off Twitter. I've been reading some books, not really going to it for my news, reading the newspaper. Um, and I can say that I'm much happier for it. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right, dude. <laughs> All right, Charles. All right. Take care. Thank you.